All right, so we are continuing our discussion on Karl Marx and communism. And today I'd like to discuss the lead up to communism, how we got there, you know, where it came all about. We're going to summarize hundreds and hundreds of years in a few seconds here, <laughs> but hopefully this overview will help you. All right, so let's go back to the Middle Ages. All of Europe is controlled by various kingdoms. Those kingdoms have kings, and those kings are, by and large, in oath with Jesus. And all of those kingdoms put together throughout all of Europe was called the kingdom of Christ. They saw Christ as the head over all of these earthly kingdoms with earthly kings and nobles and princes and and various classes. Can anyone tell me what that is called politically? What do we call that? Christendom, that's right. Christ's dom, his dominion. Christ's dominion, Christ's kingdom. So we call that political structure, that social structure that dominated the Middle Ages, we call it Christendom. It was not perfect. It wasn't a utopian age. There was still much sin and and much uh, problems in the world. Um, Jesus is not healing and ruling this world Immediately, He's not going to save the world through an immediate discontinuity event, an apocalyptic mm-hmm. event, but rather he is unfurling his kingdom gradually, right? Right? Is everyone listening? All right. So the world, the European world, the world that where the thoughts and ideas come from that we live under now, which is why we study it, um, there was a unified vision for life. No, no king but Christ. Not that they followed it perfectly, of course they did not, but that was the stated political theory or social idea. All right. Now, eventually, though, the church began to grow corrupt. The morals began to decline, perversity, greed, uh, sodomy, um, fornication, adultery, pride, hubris, covetousness. All manner of sins began to uh, infiltrate and to uh, to be um, you know to metastasize inside the church. So the church was growing corrupt, and if you want to uh, see the corruption of the church, well, you can kind of look around at the corruption of the church today. Very similar. Um, the church was also ideologically corrupt. They were synthesizing their beliefs with the teachings of Aristotle. Now we're in the late Middle Ages at this point. Like the 1300s, 1400s. And slowly but surely, they fell away from Christ. Like Israel of old, they went whoring after other gods. Just like Israel. You know the story of Israel? They're focused on God and worshiping God. Then they're apostatizing and falling away from God. That's what happened with with Christendom, with uh, all of the European uh, kingdoms. This is also what happened in other parts of the world with other uh, trajectories of Christian history, like in Ethiopia or Uganda or North Africa. They had Christian civilizations there for a little while that followed some, somewhat of a similar trajectory. So eventually, whoring after other gods, no longer united in Christ, they began to break apart. Right? Division, faction. In the north of Europe, you had a movement uh, happening in the 1500s called the Reformation. You are familiar with that, in the north. In the south, leading up to that, you had a movement called the Renaissance. The Renaissance. 
right? The reforming and the rebirthing. But the Reformation and the Renaissance, Reformation in the North and Renaissance in the South, were not established on the same ideals or virtues, nor did they have the same goals. What was the Reformation trying to get back to? The Bible. The Bible. Ad fontes. Back to the sources. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our ultimate source of truth and all of Scripture. But the Renaissance was not trying to return to the Bible. The Renaissance was trying to return to Aristotle, Aristotle, Plato, the Greeks, the Romans. Are you all familiar with the giant David statue that Michelangelo formed? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, is that David? No, not to be too graphic, but we know it's not David because he's not circumcised. Um, so that's a little graphic, but we know it's not David, but it's called David and it's bulging with muscles and it's like massive, way bigger than any normal man. Do you see what Michelangelo is trying to say? Man is giant. Man is strong. Man is powerful. What religion is that? Humanism. Humanism. That's right. Humanism. Who painted the Sistine Chapel? Uh, Michelangelo, right? Michelangelo. Someone Google that for me to make sure. But Michelangelo was performing all of this art, but he was doing it under the authority of the church. church. The church was dominant. Remember, this is in the tail end of Christendom in the Middle Ages. So he's making, quote, church art. But the church art... It was Michelangelo. That's right. The church art is being paid for by the peasants, by the people all over Europe. Who was the man who went throughout um, Europe earning money so that they could continue to build St. Peter's Basilica? John Tetzel. John Tetzel. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Do you really want to see grandma burning in hell? You can give money and she will be released today. And this money was being gathered up all over Europe to build the cathedrals and the, to paint the Sistine Chapel. If you ever go to Italy and you see it, remember that it was paid for through Roman Catholic Church oppression and tyranny. But notice, go back to the statue of David. Man is giant. Man is tall. What is he preaching there? What does that art preach? Humanism, that's right. Man is God. That's the Renaissance. Of course, he calls it David because he's piggybacking off of biblical themes because people still have somewhat of a biblical worldview. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not unlike today when politicians say that Jesus is on their side. You know, when they're for um, illegal immigration, they'll say Jesus is for the immigrants. Or when they're for stopping immigration, they'll say Jesus is, is for hard workers. He was a carpenter. They have a, they have a million different ways that they co-opt Jesus for their causes. That's what Michelangelo was doing. That's the Renaissance. Humanism returning. Greece and Rome returning. Right? So the buildings were Romanesque, Greco, Hellenistic. The art, all of these things, they're, they're going back to Aristotle and Plato and Cicero and Pythagoras, etc. So now you have Europe in the north under the influence of the Reformation and a man by the name of Augustine, really. And in the south, you have Europe under the control of the Renaissance and a man by the name of Aquinas. Aquinas is rebirthing Aristotle and Luther is rebirthing 
Augustine. Luther's famous quote, he said, what does Aristotle have to do with the church? Right? What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? So in the north, you have back to the Bible. In the south, you have back to the classics. Right? In the north, you have a, a movement of sovereignty of God. In the south, a movement of the sovereignty of man. And that breaks up the entire uh, European world. That breaks up Christendom. Christendom's no longer united under a strong and powerful pope right? with his capital in Rome. Now, England, England breaks away from Rome as well. You'll remember King Henry, he wanted his divorces, and so he compromised and pressured the Pope, and eventually the Pope didn't, uh, didn't acquiesce to his demands, and so he breaks away from, from the Roman Catholic, the Holy Roman Emperor. So now you just have Europe all broken up. Right? But it's broken up even more because as time goes on in the 18th century, you have the Enlightenment, more humanism, right? Rousseau, Locke. Hobbes, some of the people we've read already, their influence is growing all over Europe. And so now even the Protestant church, right, the Roman Catholic church has already acquiesced to tyranny and, um, you know, all sorts of horrific uh, practices. But now even the Protestant church is falling apart and crumbling. You know, they're no longer offering the world a solution to its ills. The Protestant church particularly falls into what's called <laughs> pietism. Didn't we talk about this yesterday a little? Yeah. Well, yesterday. Yeah. Well, yesterday evening, that's right. So to put, it, to put it to you one way, they no longer are preaching all of Christ over all of life. They're preaching some of Christ over some of life. The church preaches about individual morality. They're like the morality cops now. Salvation goes from being the reconciliation of all things and the defeat of all Christ's enemies, right? And the kingdom coming on earth. Salvation goes from that to individuals' personal journey away from this world, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My hope is somewhere out there beyond the blue. So as the church takes on this pietism, focuses on morality and an individual's private relationship with God, they're no longer offering the world hope for public life or for the public sphere. What does the church have to say about justice in society? Nothing. That's what, what salvation is about. It's about an individual escaping hell. Fire insurance. Right? We still have this going on today. Right? The liberals say that we need to fight for social justice. What does the church say? No, the gospel isn't about social justice. The gospel is about you being saved from your sins. No, that's, that's such a truncated understanding of the gospel. The gospel is not just for individuals. It's for families. It's for churches. It's for all the world. For God so loved the world. It's for society at large. It's for politics. It's for the public sphere. You see what I mean? So we still have that fight going on today. But there, that fight was ramping up quite a bit in the time of Marx. So <clears throat> in short, the public life, the political life, and by the way, the word public and political, it's the same word, essentially, just different derivations. The public square, society at large, no longer had a preacher in it. No longer had the word of God. 
to address societal ills. No more salt, no more light, no more vision for justice and charity, life or liberty or prosperity. So what filled the void? The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, humanism. That's really what sets the stage for Karl Marx. Okay? So, now let's get specific here. Is everyone following me? Is everyone understanding? Let's get specific. Because what is Karl Marx focused on when you're, when you're reading right now? You're reading the Communist Manifesto. What particular field of science is he saying is like the most important, is causing all of our problems? What's his focus? Like is he a, a sociologist an archaeologist, a geologist, a theologist, an economist. What is he focused in on? Does anyone remember reading that? Philosophy. He is a philosophy, but what particular species of philosophy? Social mm, Social sciences, but even more specific than that. Is it politics? Family? No. Politics. It's economics. It's economics. Okay, so let's take economics. And I think next year y'all are going to be studying um, uh, a biblical understanding of economics. I think you're going to have a whole class on it. So in economics, you have markets. Y'all, y'all are familiar with that, right? You have, like right now, the market for eggs. What's going on with the market for eggs? Skyrocketing. Eggs are like um, silver coins now, right? Too bad I can't just save them in my safe for a long time, right? So the market for eggs... Has been going through the roof. Eventually, it'll go back down. You have markets going up and markets going down. Now, but what if you have all the markets? The Dow, the NASDAQ, the S&P. Those are various uh, markets combined into little groups. And the, the market for steel, the market for PVC, which is way up right now, which is why our plumbing is going to cost so much on our new project. Right. The market for, uh, you know, windows, the market for haircuts, all of these various markets all coming together, going up and down. The housing market right now is kind of cooling off. It's slowing down. Not so much in Acadiana, though, because we have a shortage of homes and increasing population. So you see, this is I'm not even an economist. But you can see just from this short little explanation how complicated this could be, all these markets going up and down, these economic forces. You see, but what does the Bible say about economics? Does the Bible have any teaching about economics? Don't steal. Don't steal. That's a good one. So private property, right? So there's private property. Good. Tithe. So all private property is to be used for the glory of God, and we're to render a tribute to God in acknowledgement that it's all his. We can derive from that that we're to be good stewards over all of the things that God has given us as well. We're also to, to leave margins for the poor so that we have room for charity and benevolence. Anything, any other things? When you make a, a contract, you have to keep that contract, right? Are there any rules in the Bible about keeping contracts? Yeah. Yes, and about who to make contracts with and not make contracts with. What about just weights and measures? The price of gold and silver and the tr- true intrinsic value of gold as opposed to fiat currency and paper money. Do you see, does the Bible have anything to say about those things? Yeah. Yes. God is against fiat currency. You don't know what that is? Paper. Paper money. Fake money. Money assigned in a value, right? Um, the, the Bible is, has tons to say about economics. Debt. Um, debt slavery. Uh, 
restitution, all of these things. So if we wanted to build a a society with a just economy, an economy that was just, that treated everyone justly according to the laws of Scripture, right? What would we look to? We would look to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about economics? And there's entire um, theologies of economics written on the Bible. One of the most famous is written by an economist named Gary North. And he has a commentary on economics from every book of the Bible, right? But what if you throw out the Bible? What if the church is saying, hey, 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 now listen, I'm finally getting to my point here. The church says, hey, the Bible's not about economics, money, and those earthly things. The Bible is about your individual soul escaping from all of these materialistic things. These things are less. Think not on the things below, but think on the things above. Your treasure is not on earth. You see how I can do this. I can pitch this whole thing. But your treasure is in heaven. My hope is beyond the blue. I'll fly away someday. You know, I can't wait till I can fly away from all this economics. And I can go to heaven where there's no economics, apparently. Right? You see, now, if the church is saying that, and the preachers are standing up every Sunday morning and saying, I'm not up here to preach to you about economics and politics. I'm not a politician. I'm a preacher. I preach the gospel. And you don't want to go and burn in hell, so repent of your sins. Now, that's kind of true, but the thing is, he doesn't realize King Jesus is over economics. King Jesus is over the markets. You think Jesus is up in heaven biting his nails over the price of eggs right now? No, Jesus is in charge of the price of eggs. You understand what I'm saying? He is over all markets. He is sovereign over time, ups and downs of history. He is sovereign over the market prices. He controls it all. And if we want to build an economy that's just, we would then heed his laws. That's right. But what if there's no God? Well, here it is. You got the right-wing people. Now, where, who remembers where the phrase right-wing comes from? The Senate building? The, 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 the parliament in what country during what period of time? During the French Revolution, that's right. In the French Revolution, the revolutionaries had a little quote-unquote parliament. They had a right wing and a left wing, the moderates and the progressives. That's where those phrases come from. So what does a right wing person say about the economy? Now, you all have to follow this whole train of thought because we're going to get into what Marx says about economics. That's the point of this, one of the point of this book. What do the right-wing people say about economics? Well, back then, and still to this day, they said that the way to have a just society is to let the markets be free. You ever heard of that? Free markets. Free market capitalism. Have you ever heard those phrases before? Yeah. Don't control the markets. Don't regulate the markets. Let everyone compete survival of the fittest. And if everyone is allowed to compete and everyone is allowed to be free and the government doesn't use their guns and their laws to regulate the economy, then we will have a just society. Well, when you have a godless society and you have total freedom and no restraints over economic practices, what do you think is going to happen? Murder, theft. All the bad stuff. What about child labor in factories? Hey, they're free. They're free. Survival of the fittest. Right? 
Let the markets work it out. The, they taught that the markets were guided by an invisible hand, an invisible hand. Just let it be free. Well, that freedom, now freedom in a godly society would be one thing, but this is freedom in a godless society. It led to child labor in factories. You've heard the stories of the children losing their limbs and dying to 18-hour to work days for, for men down in coal mines where they died at an early age from black lung. It led to all sorts of filth and degradation. And, and so you had these blue-collar nobodies moving out from the farms because the farms were being overrun by technological advancements and whatnot. And they're living in tents around factories and, and living miserable, lonely lives while a few people owned the factories and owned the resources. And, and hey, you know, it's free. It's working out free. But what about God's laws? What about margins? What about charity? What about benevolence, right? How did Ruth make a living in the Bible? She went to the margin of the field. She worked in the fields for free in the margins of the field because God's law provides things for the poor. So is total freedom and unrestraint of economic policies and markets, is that biblical? No, because Jesus is king over the markets. So the right-wing people are way off. But then Karl Marx... He's looking at all this world created by these right-wing policies, and he's saying, wow, this is dark. This is terrible. Look at the poverty. Look at the disease. And then look at the rich fat cats with all of their money. Right? You can see why he started to see we have a class struggle here. That's the, pro- the problem is that the haves have all this, and then there's these other people that have not. That's the problem. We're alienated from each other. So there's strife and war. What we need to do is take from the haves and give to the have-nots. That's what we need to do. So that's left-wing economic theory. Left-wing economic theory teaches that a centralized government with guns should regulate everything. Overtax. In fact, he taught no property at all. Who's more right, the left or the right? They're both wrong. And because they're both humanistic, they both create a different type of hell okay they both create a different type of hell now if a society were godly then freedom in the markets would be ideal all right Um, but if a society is evil then freedom turns to tyranny that's true of any subject yeah for sure but what i'm saying is that when they threw out christendom and they threw out the bible and the churches threw out all of Christ and all of life and started teaching salvation as an individual soul's escape journey from earth, um, the church had nothing to say about it. The church didn't have an economic theory. The church didn't have a political theory. The church was simply talking about the individual's morality and escape from this world. You see? So private property, when Marx's vision catches on and the, and the proletariat rise up and they're like, we're tired of this free market capitalism. We want socialism. We want communism. That will save the day. It, it caught on like wildfire. It's still catching on. So what happened? Private property out, communal property in. That's why you get taxed at about 50% right now. Right? That's why you have property tax because no one really believes in property. Right? Um, just weights and measures, the gold standard, true currency out, 
fiat currency in, paper money in. So now your dollar sometimes is worth this and sometimes is worth that based on central planning, based on the central bank, based on the control by elites. You see how that works? Localism, that means local government with representatives that you elect is out. Bureaucrats, far away behind desks, running everything in. You can't do a lot of things anymore because of this new system, central planning, government. The image of God and man is out. And what's in? Euthanasia, eugenics, abortion. If it's good for the people, then it's good. Right? Exercising dominion in the name of Jesus, science over the earth, out. Exercising dominion in the name of man to control nature and to build paradise without God, in. And uh, does that sound like it's still uh, happening today? Mm -hmm. Yes, it most certainly is still happening today. Now, uh, real quick, all of this sounds a lot like what that happened before. Revolution? The, the French Revolution. That's right. This is all the same. This is more of the same. Karl Marx even believed that he was picking up the Re French Revolution where he left off. That's what he believed. Right? So, everyone see what we're doing here? Everyone see what's happening? So what he's going to do, and then we'll, uh, we'll close it with this, and uh, I don't want to take too much time on this. He believes this. Uh, no, we'll get to this next time.